This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air. Like the Kokako, the saddleback or Tieke belongs to the New Zealand wattlebird family. A family to which the Huia belonged and which has been established in this country since ancient times, much longer than most of our other birds. The saddleback takes its name from the bright reddish saddle on its back, which according to legend is the mark of Maui's hand. Sadly, this attractive bird has disappeared from the main islands and exists only on a few offshore islands, carefully chosen locations for resettlement away from predators, which appears to have saved the tieke from total extinction. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or Chaos is made possible with the support of Quakers Aotearoa. You'll find them online at quaker.org.nz. Good morning, friends. Welcome back to Community or Chaos. Must be Tuesday morning. And you can podcast this by going to oar.org.nz and then going to podcast, then going to Media Chaos. Today we have the pleasure of having Chris Trotter with us. Chris Trotter is a political commentator who writes a column from the left, and he is the author of a political history of New Zealand called No Left Turn. Welcome aboard, Chris. Good morning, and thank you very much for having me, Marvin. Good to talk to you again. First we'll talk about the budget, and then we'll probably talk about the new proposed history curriculum for primary schools. Did the labor budget meet your expectations or hopes? Well, yes, I was expecting something of the sort. Uh, I think a great many commentators realized that... uh, The pressure for Labour to do something, particularly uh, in relation to beneficiaries, uh, had grown um, very considerably since the election. Uh, There was now no real excuse for Labour to shirk its duty to the poor uh, because, of course, they command an absolute parliamentary majority. And so they did something uh, reasonably substantive, Not as much, uh, of course, as many of the groups working alongside beneficiaries might have wished, but certainly more than uh, Helen Clark's uh, Labour-led governments were ever prepared to do. Uh, They had nine years uh, to reverse the benefit cuts of uh, Ruth Richardson in 1991, and they didn't do it. And I thought it was very significant that, uh, uh, in a sense... Grant Robertson pivoted on that crucial uh, mother of all budgets uh, of 1991. He held it up as a symbol of neoliberal cruelty, uh, one that hadn't really been seriously addressed uh, for 20, 30 years. Uh, And the budget, in a sense, was about Labour coming back to its duties duties that it had shirked for a very long time. Uh, And so it was uh, an important political statement, 
uh, it didn't really change uh, the world in, in a dramatic way uh, on the ground. But uh, before you can get changes on the ground, you need to uh, win permission to do so uh, from the electorate. Uh, you need to win the battle for hearts and minds, as they say. And I think that was an important thrust uh, that Grant Robertson made in his budget. Do you think uh, in, the, in the in the direction of returning Labour to uh, its more traditional agenda uh, in favour of the poor? Do you think agenda uh, uh, Jacinda Ardern will regret at some point that she made the promise not to bring in capital gains taxes? Oh no. Um, uh, I don't think she'll ever regret it uh, because as she uh, told people uh, when she made that commitment there's only so many times uh, a political party should put a proposition to the electorate and have it rejected and then put it up again and have it rejected and then put it up again and have it rejected by the electorate as she said um, the message has been received. New Zealanders were offered uh, a Labour Party manifesto in which a capital gains tax and many other uh, um, uh, traditional uh, revenue-gathering uh, options were included, and Labour's vote went down and went down and went down, ultimately, till it reached, what, 25% under David Cunliffe. Uh, she drew a lesson from that, and I think in terms of pure democratic politics, if not social democratic politics, uh, you know, she's got a point. Uh, how many times do you have to be told, we don't want that, before you stop offering it? Do you think maybe the New Zealand population should learn something about the... I'm sorry, do the I New think Zealand population should learn something about the results <laughs> of not having a well, well, yeah. Especially the, you know, the growing, you know, ma- growing, perhaps, yeah. the growing majority that can't afford houses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But look, you know, you're sounding very much like the famous um, Bertolt Brecht poem where uh, he talks about the, uh, uh, the leaders of the Communist Party being being so disappointed when the workers rebelled uh, against them uh, in Germany in 1953. Uh, and he said with, with, uh, with wonderful German irony, would it not be easier uh, to abolish the people and elect uh, uh, another one? Um, you know, the, the whole essence of democracy is that the people are always right. Uh, the moment you stop believing that, then uh, you really stop believing in democracy. I, sup- I wouldn't say that we should pass legislation that had been rejected time and again, but we do have a, a duty to, to educate and lead. Well, that's true. Um, but uh, I think there was a great deal of education and leadership uh, over a period of nearly 10 years. Uh, in which uh, capital gains taxes were, were explained, the amount of revenue to be raised for them uh, was set out, 
Uh, experts chimed in saying New Zealand is very weird because it doesn't have one. Even the United States has a capital gains tax. Um, it makes perfect sense. It's not really radical. Um, the South well, Africans maybe, have, have a have a capital gains tax that that raises about four or five billion dollars uh, every year in in a, in a poor African country. So one of the you things know, that all that all that all that work was done, Marvin, but people still didn't. Vote maybe for it. people didn't realize, especially people who don't actually own a home, how badly this affects the ability to to buy homes. Yeah, I'm not sure whether a capital gains tax would have avoided what we've got here in New Zealand in terms of the housing crisis. After all, they they have a capital gains tax in force across the Tasman and Australia, and in cities like Sydney and Melbourne, you know, there has been the same extraordinary inflation in uh, the cost of housing. Uh, I think it's it's almost always uh, a uh, supply-side problem with housing, Marvin. If you don't have enough houses or the wrong sort of houses are being constructed, uh, then the laws of supply and demand simply kick in. You think it was perhaps more the fact right. that under for 20 years or so we sold off many more state houses than we built? Yeah, yeah. I mean, for for nearly thirty years, um, there has been a woeful neglect of um, state house construction of social housing okay. in general, uh, and uh, those uh, chickens are roosting all over the place now. Okay, you wrote an article um, on the far from the left, uh, criticizing the. Um, Otero New Zealand hist- history curriculum after reading the draft and accusing it of being an ideological document from the revolutionary far left. Could you briefly describe the curriculum? Look, what I wrote was um, a piece called The Rise and Fall and Rise of the Revolutionary Left. And what it was really about was the way in which the extremism um, on the left of politics, particularly in the United States, but more generally around the world, um, uh, was very much uh, to the forefront in the 1970s. And perhaps the most famous case, of course, was the abduction and radicalization of the uh, newspaper heiress, um, 19-year-old Patty Hearst, by the Symbionese Liberation Army. Uh, and uh, the SLA, of course, was, was crushed uh, in, a, in a bloody gun battle uh, and fire um, by the... Uh, the combined might of LAPD and the FBI, I think. Uh, But, you know, that was in the 70s. And then, of course, a few years later, because Patty Hearst's abduction was in 1974, a few years later, you got the election of Ronald Reagan, um, a year after the election of Margaret Thatcher in the UK. 
And in a sense, it looked as though all of that um, left-wing radicalism had just gone away. I mean, the right was in the political saddle, and it was riding very hard. And I think um, the mainstream culture of the United States and, and the West in general forgot about the 60s and, and the 70s. Uh, the left had been in the saddle uh, in those decades, uh, and... Uh, now it wasn't. Now um, the ideas of the 60s and 70s were being um, uh, slapped down all over the place. Uh, and I think it just was a matter of those ideas um, falling out of uh, you know, mainstream political discourse. You didn't, you didn't see the big articles in the newspapers anymore. No one really cared what the students for a democratic society were doing at their um, national convention. Uh, all of these things seemed to have gone away. It was mourning in America, as the Reaganites said, and there was you know a new sheriff in town. But the point I was making in the in the from the left column was that these debates and these ideas didn't go away. They didn't disappear. They were still there on the left. You had these and debates in the left as well. It wasn't just between the left and the right. You had the, these debates in the left. Well, exactly. Exactly, Marvin. Um, uh, that was where the debate was confined largely and in the institutions where the left still wielded some influence, like the universities, like the trade unions, like the students' associations for a while. Uh, and, of course, within um, centre-left and left-wing political parties. These debates continued in those contexts. And anybody who was on the left in the 1980s, the 1990s, will recall the bitterness, the viciousness of the... Uh, Debates, the confrontations that took place uh, um, inside political parties, in the in the the revolutionary left wing parties, and we had three or four of those in New Zealand back in the nineteen eighties. Was the Socialist Unity Party, which was Moscow aligned. There was the Trotskyite Socialist Action League. There was the Workers Communist League, which was more Chinese aligned, uh, more Maoist. Uh, these parties, um, less so the SUP, which was very traditional and, and um, dominated, I think, pretty heavily by you know middle-aged white trade union guys. Um, but yeah, but in the the, the more uh, uh, radical parties of the left, the, the debates over things like uh, feminism, Maori um, nationalism, uh, gay rights. Um, they were vicious, and they 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 tore those um, admittedly very small organisations apart. But you know, it was there too in the Labour Party, where um, the Women's Council grew and grew, and its and its influence grew and grew. Uh, you saw it most particularly, I think, in the anti-racist 
movement, which was very big, of course, at the end of 1981 because of um, the events of the uh, Springbok tour and the protests um, it provoked across New Zealand. Um, Maori nationalists, you know, had become very impatient with their Pākehā comrades because while the Pākehā um, left could focus on the, the racism in South Africa, which admittedly uh, was, was pretty hard to miss, um, they would say, why have you never marched in such numbers? Why have you never taken such risks with your personal liberty over what was happening um, right under your nose uh, in New Zealand uh, uh, in relation to, to Māori and their, their issues? which is a perfectly fair question, of course. Um, but as tends to happen, once these debates take off, uh, they become very polarizing. They are often very personalized. And things get very heated um, very quickly. Uh, and so if you were on the, on the left in those years, then you saw all this unfolding. You saw the battles, you know, between men and women. Um, you saw the battles between gays and straights. You saw the battles between um, Maori and Pākehā, black and white. Uh, so, uh, in a sense, the left's been through this a good 20 or 30 years before anybody else. Uh, and it, it, it weakened the left considerably. Uh, of course, other things were weakening the left. Neoliberalism was weakening the left. Then, of course, you've got so the National Party and the Employment Contracts Act, and that completely undermined uh, the trade union movement, which was one of the bastions of the old left. Uh, so the left was being weakened anyway. But with these internal battles raging, um, uh, it became even weaker. Uh, and as neoliberalism entrenched itself and its ideas became the ruling ideas of most Western societies, um, the, the left redefined itself slowly away from matters economic and towards matters cultural. Including economic inequality? Well, the, the problems of economic Inequality still had people uh, who spoke to them, but the the ability of those people to move the conscience of the nation was far less than it had been the case in the in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, right up until the um, third Labour government of of Norman Kirk between 72 and 75. I mean, the idea that that unemployment uh, might um, top 10,000 people was regarded as an absolutely shameful situation um, by just about all politicians, uh, you know, back in the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, you know, the idea that unemployment might fall to, you know, somewhere between 8 and 10,000 now people would think Nirvana had arrived, but in a New Zealand where there simply hadn't been any mass unemployment since the Great Depression, 
and where full employment was the clear goal of both major parties and where the welfare state was entrenched and unchallenged by both of the major parties. Um, that New Zealand had disappeared. Um, you could have 100,000 people unemployed, 200,000 people unemployed, and um, uh, the economists simply referred to it as the natural rate of unemployment. You, know, okay. that you, you could have all of these citizens okay. suffering, and everyone just choked. So that part of what the left used to be about was was very attenuated by by um, the turn of the century, and of course you had the disappearance of actually existing socialism in Eastern Europe and in the Soviet Union. By August 1991, uh, with the exceptions of Cuba and, uh, and North Korea, th there weren't any actually existing uh, socialist regimes in, in the world because even the Chinese had moved away from the... the um, very um, rigid um, state-owned economy uh, that characterised uh, the socialist countries um, post-World War II. So all of this ended up with a very shaved version of the left. Gone were all the curly locks of um, working-class power, trade unionism, uh, you know, state housing, um, state ownership of, of the financial se sector or large parts of it. Um, all of that had gone. And what was left was pursuit of equality for women, uh, um, giving equal rights to um, the old GBGT uh, community, um, and in New Zealand, in particular, addressing uh, the historical inequities of colonialism, and that was that was the area now in which what people called the left operated. All right, and somehow the. The draft curriculum um, made you think of that. Uh, well, uh, I mentioned the draft curriculum, you know, towards the end of the article. I don't give it a great deal of um, of time. What what really caught my attention was an article published in the City Journal, which is an American um, publication, uh, called "The Child Soldiers of Portland" by a conservative uh, American journalist called. Christopher Rufo. Now, Portland, for those paying attention, was a hotbed of um, a radical uh, protest uh, in, uh, in the United States, uh, which really kicked off with the uh, Black Lives Matter movement and, and kind of went on from there. Uh, what uh, Christopher Rufo was writing about was the introduction of, uh, of anti-racist um, elements into the curriculum of the schools in Portland, because, of course, as you would well know, um, Marvin, um, education has, has a much more local flavor in the United States. You have school boards and uh, 
citywide education uh, uh, policies, and then you have state uh, policies on top of that. Um, and there seems to have been a real capture um, in the state of Oregon and in the city of Portland of um, the curriculum uh, that is being taught uh, to um, to uh, prime what we would call primary and uh, and intermediate and secondary school students. And of course, that did um, remind me um, of what is happening here because. Uh, there will be a new and compulsory New Zealand history curriculum, uh, and it is going to have uh, a particular focus. Um, and once more, it's been introduced um, at a time when teachers themselves are having to come up to speed, not only um, with Tereo, you really are expected now to know how to speak um, Māori if you're wanting to be a a teacher in good standing. But also, um, teachers are expected to be able to teach anti-racist material to their students. Um, The Ministry of Education um, talks about indigenization of the uh, of the the running of schools, of of the way the schools present uh, to to the students um, who attend them, uh, this is all very reminiscent um, of of what's being described in in, in Rufo's The Child Soldiers of Portland, um, which is a very very interesting, um, very very interesting article. So. Uh, We've already seen, I think there was a a case in Northland uh, where uh, a primary school uh, pupil was was, uh, expected to to talk to his classmates about his white privilege. Now, you know, that strikes me as as probably not the best way um, to maintain uh, a semblance of, of goodwill between New Zealand's various various ethnicities, most particularly um, the relationship between Pākehā uh, and, and Māori, because that really took me all the way back to the language uh, that I heard in the, uh, in the, the, the uh, History Channel documentary, one of many going under the um, title of The Lost Tapes. These are, are, are pretty raw footage um, of, of what happened at the time. And of course, uh, Patty Hurst um, recorded um, a number of messages to her very wealthy parents. Um, and it, it's amazing. You hear the same uh, very radical language about uh, white privilege and bourgeois privilege and and uh, the importance of confronting the systemic racism of the United States in, in the case of Patty Hearst. And you realize that, that this sort of language and these sort of ideas have not um, you know, just materialized um, in front of us out of nothing. Uh, this is a tradition that goes back um, 40, 50 years, uh, it, 
it, it, it was out of sight and, and largely out of mind as far as the mainstream uh, of um, Western societies was concerned, particularly, as I said, when the right had its big victories uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, and neoliberalism and globalization became the norm right across the world. Um, but in reality, this sort of language, these sort of ideas didn't disappear. They have been there all along. They, they were confined, in a way, to the left um, and to those institutions uh, the left still had influence in. And most particularly in the universities, those ideas have been gathering more and more strength and they have been uh, acquiring more and more adherence. And so a lot of young people are emerging from our universities very much possessed of these ideas. And uh, so as those people take their place um, in society, uh, in the various institutions of society, um, these ideas suddenly uh, reappear, you know, almost magically. Because you hear people say, when did all this begin? You know, when did we start doing this? Because I can't remember us doing this, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. We never had all this sort of stuff about white privilege and systemic racism and all this stuff. I mean, where did, where did all this come from? Well, I guess the point I was trying to make was it never went away. It was overlaid by the victory of, of the right and the imposition of neoliberalism from the 80s onwards. Um, but it didn't mean that all this stuff disappeared. It didn't mean these ideas um, ceased to be discussed, ceased to be taught. They've always, they've always been there, and they're very, very radical ideas. All right, I'm going to play a piece of music and we'll come back. Oh, what will you give me? See the sad bells are ringing. Is there hope for the future? See the brown bells are The black bells of Rwanda And who killed the miners Say the grim bells of Lina Throw the vandals in court See the bells of Will be well if, 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 if See the green bells of Cardiff Why so worried, sisters, why See the silver bells of white And what will you give me See the sad bells of
wonder willy-nilly Say the bells of Carefilly They have fangs, they have teeth Shout the loud bells of need Even God is uneasy See the moist bells of Swansea And what will you give me Say the sad bells of Rimini Oh, what will you give me Say the sad bells of Rimini Is there hope for the future Say the brown bells of murder Who will make the mine owners See the black bells of Rwanda And who killed the miners See the grim bells of Lina We're talking to Chris Trotter, a political columnist and a author of a political history of New Zealand called No Left Turn. And you can podcast this by going to oar.org.nz and then going to podcasting, going to community or chaos. We've been talking about um, the how we discuss our history and how we discuss and deal with uh, ethnic antagonisms and prejudice. We Could you briefly define identity politics and maybe talk a little bit about the question of does this identity politics encourage or enable us to ignore other very important basic issues such as economic class inequality and who benefits from ignoring economic inequality? Well, identity politics has become a bit of a swear word um, in political commentary. uh, And I suppose uh, the, the easiest way to define it is in terms of the politics that arises out of the realities of uh, one's uh, biological sex, uh, one's ethnicity, uh, one's uh, sexual orientation, uh, these uh, are realities um, which down through millennia have really made a huge impact upon how 
human beings relate to one another and how they uh, treat one another. Uh, if you were a woman up until very recently, in most cultures uh, throughout history, you have uh, enjoyed a, a decidedly subordinate uh, status vis-a-vis -vis, um, your, your brothers and fathers uh, and sons. Um, if your sexuality um, tended towards um, homosexuality or lesbianism, uh, I mean, you could be killed. And there are countries around the world where you still can be killed um, for expressing uh, your sexuality in that way. And of course, um, what used to be called race, and I suppose still is, although race uh, is... A, a, a very loaded word these days, uh, especially after the tragedies of the 1930s and the 1940s. But, you know, race was at the core of uh, what we saw uh, in the deep south of the United States. It was at the core of, of what we saw in South Africa between 1948 and 1992. You know, racial prejudice, the the subjugation of uh, coloured peoples around the world, uh, was you know an extraordinarily uh, important um, aspect of the history of the last five or six centuries. Uh, you know, the uh, the capture of of Africans and and their transportation to the Americas, uh, to the Caribbean sugar islands um, as slaves, was one of the great crimes of human history. Uh, you're a, an American by birth, Marvin, one of the most defining moments in American history um, was the Civil War, uh, the emancipation of the slaves by Abraham Lincoln, the Reconstruction period in the South, uh, the, the eventual end of Reconstruction, and then the revolt, almost... Revolt suppression. It was enabled by... Well, um, yes, yes. The, the Reconstruction period was really when the federal government uh, sent troops uh, and administrators into the, the former states of the Confederacy uh, and enforced the new um, uh, constitutional amendments granting uh, equality to... Uh, to all Americans and, and voting rights to all Americans. And for a period of about 10 years, the, the South was transformed. Uh, you had um, uh, black uh, state uh, uh, legislators. You had, you had black congressmen in Washington. Um, it, it was an extraordinary um, period, but it didn't last. Uh, after 1877, uh, the federal troops and the federal uh, administrators uh, were withdrawn. And then suddenly, uh, what came to be known as, as the Jim Crow system um, was, was imposed, which stripped African Americans of their civil rights. Uh, and in many, in many respects, uh, restored a form of slavery. Chattel slavery certainly was abolished, but... Uh, 
if you were accused, for example, of vagrancy, if you were found on the roads and you couldn't give a good explanation of why you were walking from one part of the South to another, um, you could be arrested, you could be tried in a court presided over by a, a white judge, uh, you could be sent to a prison farm, and then your labor could be hired out um, to a nearby farmer or sawmiller or mining company or whatever um, at, at no at, at <laughs> Uh, and no benefit to you, certainly. Well, neoliberalism, to some extent, and the filling of American prisons, of course, brought some of that back. Well, yes, and what we are seeing now in the United States uh, is what some people are calling Jim Crow 2.0. Exactly the same fear grips white America that it will be um, uh, overshadowed by people of uh, a different color. Uh, and what we're seeing uh, in the states controlled by the Republican Party is an attempt to suppress the vote of all but uh, affluent uh, white American citizens uh, so that the, the, the demographic changes in the United States, which will soon see um, uh, white Americans, as they like to call themselves, uh, become... Um, uh, a minority, less than 50% of the population. Uh, and this terrifies, this terrifies uh, the, uh, the American. Perhaps we'd better get uh, to, back to Aotearoa, New Zealand. Well, yeah, by all means. The, we, New Zealand has slightly, it's not often, it's not always acknowledged by some people, but we have a slightly different history of colonialism than Australia or even America. Uh, can you, we, what was it in the Foreign Office that, in, why was the Foreign Office um, more willing to have a, a treaty between the, the Aboriginal people of New Zealand, the Maori people, and prior uh, foreign office well, policy. Well, the, the, the Treaty of Waitangi... And weren't they uh, the same people who abolished slavery and uh, tried to suppress slavery all around the world? The same folk... Well, what you're referring to, Marvin, um, for those who are unfamiliar with, with the history of the early 19th century, is that um, the British Empire outlawed slavery uh, around about the 1820s, 1830s, I think. Uh, and, and this was actually was, promoted by Christian evangelicals and by Quakers in the beginning. And some of these people were in Parliament and also in the Foreign Office later on. Well, there was a massive missionary uh, uh, project undertaken by many denominations, um, most particularly, of course, the Anglican Church, but also um, um, by, by Methodists uh, and, of course, um, by the Catholic Church also. Uh, and there was... Uh, an idealistic uh, stream that flowed through British politics uh, in 
the early part of the uh, 19th century, and part and parcel of that was a desire uh, to avoid the kind of rapacious uh, activities which characterized the empire building of the previous two or three centuries, most particularly uh, you know, the, the whole slave trade, you know, which involved uh, sending uh, armed men into the interior of Africa and abducting hundreds, if not thousands, uh, of people from their homes and um, putting them on ships and sailing them across the Atlantic. And what? so on and so forth. And the and the British, if I can, you know, get to answering the question, Marvin, the the British government, the the Foreign and Colonial Office of of the British government, um, uh, was was intent on uh, uh, limiting, if it could, this sort of behaviour. So. When it became clear that New Zealand um, was up for grabs, whether it be by uh, the New Zealand company, a, a bunch of English capitalists, uh, or whether it be from foreign powers uh, like the French, uh, all of them angling uh, for a chunk uh, of New Zealand real estate, um, the British government was very keen to come out here and uh, stake its claim to New Zealand, but um, in a way which involved um, a measure of consent uh, on the part of the indigenous people, the Maori. Uh, and the, those were essentially the instructions with which Captain Hobson sailed for New Zealand. And that was essentially the intent of the British uh, and their representatives uh, when they got here, when they got to the Bay of Islands. Um, and they were very, very uh, materially assisted in their policy by the missionaries. Now, there is considerable historical contention uh, in the 21st century as to what the chiefs who gathered up at Waitangi um, signed. The missionaries translated uh, Captain Hobson's um, treaty into Maori as best they could. Uh, and that is the document that was read out. Um, of course, many of the Maori present spoke English. Some of them had even been uh, across the Tasman to Sydney or even further afield to London. So they knew exactly what what uh, what Hobson and and the British were about, but uh, you know, history rolls along, and now we have a very um, sharp debate here in New Zealand um, among historians as, as to what the treaty means. If you had asked someone living a hundred years ago what the Treaty of Waitangi meant, they'd have had to scratch their heads to even remember what the Treaty of Waitangi was, um, and uh, as far as uh, they knew anything about it, they would say, oh, yes, that's right. That's what was signed up at, up at Waitangi. That's how um, Britain um, uh, acquired New Zealand. But, of course, um, you know, it didn't really last very long because within five years, um, you know, Honahiki was cutting down flagpoles and red coats were firing cannons and that went on for a while but in the end 
you know, uh, New Zealand was one um, uh, for the British Crown, for the British Empire, in exactly the same way it was won by the Maori, um, by conquest, pure and simple. A uh, hundred years ago, um, you know, social Darwinism was all the rage. It was the survival of the fittest, and as far as as most people in the West were concerned, um, the white races were the fittest, and that's why they ruled the world, and uh, that was exactly as it should be. So a hundred years ago, um, the sort of debates we are now having would be simply inconceivable um, as far as the people living in 1921 were, were concerned New Zealand was a done deal. Um, the wars with the Maori had all been won quite handily and uh, they they were well and truly in the past. Isn't it a sign of progress that you're actually able to have these debates? Well, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> I, think, I think the reason we're having them is because... Uh, um, Maori nationalism really um, uh, you know, got its second wind um, in the years after the Springbok tour. Um, probably the most famous document from that time was um, Donna Awatiri's Maori Sovereignty, which came out in well, 82, 83, a series of articles in Broadsheet magazine and then later published as a book. Uh, this, was, this was very radical stuff. Um, and uh, Donna Awatiri, in spite of what she went on to, to, to do and the parties she went on to join, um, uh, she was a really seminal figure, it seemed to me, in terms of uh, New Zealand politics, particularly um, the politics of, uh, of ethnicity in New Zealand. Uh, and... Uh, you know, this is this this has been a, a debate uh, that, in in a very re- real sense, was rekindled almost from nothing. Um, there were elements within Maoridom that had never ever given up uh, on on uh, trying to uh, get the treaty on it, uh, but really. Uh, it's only in the last 40 years or so that the sort of debate uh, which New Zealanders are now becoming didn't, uh, quite familiar um, was, 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 was begun. Didn't As matter. I say, before, before that, um, there really wasn't a debate at all. Didn't matter I mean, rather when he was Minister of Maori Affairs and Labour actually take this treaty seriously. Well, you've got to remember that, that yes, there was the, the land march because so little Maori land remained. And, uh, and Machurata um, was the Minister of Maori Affairs and uh, the, the, the Waitangi Tribunal was set up. But let's not forget, the Waitangi Tribunal, as it was originally conceived, could only deal with contemporary issues. It, it, it wasn't until the fourth Labour government uh, and Geoffrey Palmer uh, that the uh, Waitangi Tribunal legislation was amended okay. so that um, grievances could be heard going all the way back to the signing of the treaty in 1840. Uh, and that was, that, was, that was a very radical step, it, it, it must be said. And then you've got the treaty settlement process because the Waitangi Tribunal has no um, definitive power. 
it can produce recommendations, but it cannot make them uh, into what is effectively um, legal injunctions. Uh, that requires legislation, that requires Parliament, and so the settlement process has uh, um, unfolded uh, since okay. the early 90s. And it was, it was the National Party, to give credit where credit is due, um, Doug Graham and, and Jim Bolger, that really kicked that whole process off. Now, if we're thinking about education and curriculums, up until recently, Maori children were punished for speaking to real. Oh, I think you've got to define recently. That hasn't happened for a couple of generations now. That happened uh, in the first half of the 20th century. Yeah, so that's quite a, quite a, quite a long way away. Yes, that's now. true. And the... But... So there was sense of Maori loss of culture and language. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that, that, that's true. Although I, I don't think I don't think it's fair to say that the Maori culture you know, has been lost. Uh, I, I think it's one of the really important aspects of New Zealand's history, just how robust its indigenous people and their culture has proved to be. Okay. Um, and and what the new curriculum uh, does, uh, at least in its draft form, it says New Zealand's history is essentially, and that word essentially is really important, is essentially a Maori history. And if you say, okay, well, the Maori arrived here in, in the 1200s, early 1300s, and you know Europeans didn't turn up here in, in any numbers until about 1800s, so. Yeah, between 1300 and about 1800, um, the, all of the history of New Zealand uh, was, was Maori history. And the intervening period, the, the colonial period, you know, is, is relatively short compared to that long uh, period of human uh, habitation in, in, in these islands. Although, I think it's also very important to, to draw a distinction here between the indigeneity of, say, the Aboriginal people of Australia who have lived on that continent for between 50 and 70,000 years and the, the peoples of the North and South American continents who have lived there for between um, 15 and 20,000 years. Um, and... Uh, the peoples who have come to New Zealand in the last thousand years. Maori arrived first, but they are arrived from somewhere else, um, just as the Europeans arrived from somewhere else. And in the greater scheme of things, um, the occupation of territory for a period of 500 years isn't that long a period of time. Um, nobody can dispute the fact that Maori uh, arrived here first. They were the first human beings to settle in these islands, which you know, were the last great land masses on earth to be occupied by human beings. But they haven't been here for very long compared 
to other indigenous people, compared to Native okay. Americans. You've got about Aboriginal, one more minute compared, before the show, yeah. before the computer turns us off. So what, what are your hopes, and how would you see we should... Do you think there needs to be a balance or... Look, Marvin, if, if, we've only, if we've only got a minute, let, let me say this. New Zealand has an incredibly rich history. I think it has a very proud history because there is really nothing in our history to match um, uh, a Sand Creek massacre or a Wounded Knee massacre or the sort of um, wild hunting of Aboriginals that went on in the Australian outback. New Zealand's uh, uh, history of Pākehā Māori encounters, there are shameful aspects to it, but there are also very proud moments in, in our history. Uh, and I, I think that the people growing up in New Zealand, the kids growing up in New Zealand, should be taught a history that makes them feel proud to be uh, citizens of Aotearoa, New Zealand, not uh, a history which makes them feel guilty. Um, I just don't think that's helpful in any way, shape or form. Okay, Chris, thanks a lot for coming on board. Always a pleasure, Marlon. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.